You're listening to Just You, a podcast where people speak openly about their stories, revealing the profound impacts that narratives have on shaping our lives. Each episode, join me in exploring the concept of storytelling while we broaden our understanding of the art of personal narrative. Together, we'll have honest conversations, reveal how stories shape our lives, and perhaps discover hidden reflections of our stories along the way. With me, Janika Galloway, as your host, it's time to be Just You. I write in the book as well about an idea I came across that was just about actually welcoming the pain in for a cup of tea and acknowledging it and rather than pushing it away and pretending everything's fine, you know, just just actually welcoming it in, give it a name if if you want. You know, I called mine Horace and when I'd get this nausea and fatigue, I'd just sort of say, oh, hi, Horace, you're back. Yeah, cool. Um, we hung out all day yesterday. Sweet. Okay. Uh, and the idea being that it just can't exhaust you in the same way because you're you're acknowledging it, you're sitting with it. Hi, storytellers. This is Just You. I'm your host, Janika Galloway. And at just 31 years old, Bryony Benjamin found out that she was right about not feeling right. So what do you do when you find out that the story that you've planned for, the one that you were working towards, shifts into one of the scariest narratives that you could imagine? One where you're not guaranteed to see the other side. Do you carry on? Do you crumble? Do you cry? Or do you record yourself doing all of the above? My guest today is a remarkable woman who used her power of storytelling to not only move her through this narrative, but to also leave an honest trail to help others do the same. Let's explore her story together. So I want to start today with what was your plan for your life before life's plan started unfolding for you? Yes. Well, I was at the time working as executive producer of video at Mamma Mia Women's Network, the largest digital publisher for women in Australia. And it really felt like life was just really taking off. Uh, I'd been working in production for 10 years and my passion had always been content for change. So using humor, using joy, using creative ways of telling stories to bring people along with issues that can feel really heavy and difficult sometimes, uh, because I always work from the assumption that people are good at heart, they do care, but they're overwhelmed, they're stretched, they're too busy. And yeah, so it was always about content for change for me in whatever way that took place. Uh, And then I'd taken the role at Mamma Mia because I saw a real opportunity there to speak to a huge platform of women and talk about issues that were really important to them. It was like quite an edgy platform, um, you know, unafraid to sort of be out there and just have an opinion. And I quite liked that. And so, yeah, that's what that's what life was sort of on track at that time. Very busy social life, very busy Sydney, you know, media career and everything felt good and fun apart from one little problem that I felt really awful all the time. Yeah, definitely. And I'm a hundred percent aware of Mamma Mia. They are incredible. That platform is, is wonderful. And that is a huge platform to come and, and start your career and grow your career. And I can imagine it would have been really exciting to have gotten to that level of like, wow, like I'm living my dream of working with these these people that have the same ideas as me and want to put women forward and share women's voices. Can you take us through what your life looked like in terms of where you were living and, and what kind of picture it was in just everyday life? 
Yes, I was living in Paddington in a share house. There were actually three houses in a row and we were all twenty late 20-somethings. And so there was about 10 of us between all the houses and we'd all become friends. It was like this little village. So it was a lot of fun. And I was playing touch football once a week and playing squash once a week. I love squash randomly. Um, part of this squash club in Sydney that's sort of become the centre of my social life. And so, yeah, very active uh, and then jam-packed every other minute was filled with sort of social activities. And that hadn't always been the case when I first moved to Sydney. I actually felt really lonely for the first two years. I think Sydney can be hard to crack when you first move here. I'm a Queenslander and I was working a job that just worked me insane hours, like all all nights, all weekends. Uh, That was quite a difficult place to work in in the long run and I think was probably, if I pinpoint it back, was the beginning of me starting to get sick. Mm -hmm. And I always say to everyone now, no matter how much you love a job, no matter how much you're learning, no job is worth sacrificing a 1% of your health, you know. But it's easy, I suppose, when you're young and you think you're invincible, you just want to get ahead and, you know, I had done two degrees, so I'd done a commerce finance degree and then gone and done film. So I think I did feel this sense of that I was behind and I needed to catch up. So I was sort of happy to just flog myself uh, for for two years. But, yeah, it meant I was quite lonely um, in that preceding time and then I moved into this network where there was a whole lot of fun people living and moved in, you know, found this squash club and it started, you know, you started to form a bit of a community and and have a lot of fun. Yeah. And when you're young like that, you also just don't think that anything wrong could possibly go, you know, nothing could go wrong in your life at that point. You're just, you know, late twenties starting your life really. Absolutely. And what is it? The sunscreen song by Baz Luhrmann where he says, you know, the, this, worry or know that worrying is about as useful as trying to solve a algebra equation by chewing bubble gum or something, you know, because <laughs> it's the things that are going to completely blow you off track and catch you completely unawares of things that you can't even sort of comprehend or imagine. Yeah. You know, I'm paraphrasing, but it is, it's so true, isn't it? Like you said, at that age, you just think you're invincible. Like the sort of things that are going to come your way, you have no idea. And thank goodness you don't, or you live in a constant state of stress and fear. But yes. Yeah, absolutely. And so when did you know something was wrong? Yeah, well, I think it was, you know, over a long period of just feeling, you know, I suppose in that job that I mentioned that I was just sort of stressed and run down and tired all the time. And I got used to sacrificing sleep and just always feeling a bit out of it, really. That was probably the beginning. And then, yeah, I think just getting used to feeling like always just feeling a bit icky and a bit off and a bit tired and that becoming normal. And so, you know, I think really I hit a point where I thought maybe this is just what being an adult feels like, you know, because you you talk to people, you know, say they say, how are you feeling? Oh, I feel really tired. Oh, yeah, I'm really tired too. You know, I can't tell you how many times that happened in the in the lead up to getting diagnosed. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I would just get sick very easily. I started to have night sweats on and off and I just had all these different random symptoms. Well, seemingly random. They were actually all completely connected. I had itchy skin. I, uh, yeah, I w- was having these night sweats on and off. Like I was waking up drenched in my own sweat and having to change my sheets and my pajamas. And my GP at the time, really lovely lady, but sort of, you know, I'll put it down to hormones or this, that, the other. Sure. When really I was a, otherwise seemingly healthy 31 year old 
And I think I, looking back on it now, I think a lot of women's health issues and particularly with cancer diagnosis and various things like that can get put down to mental health concerns. Women are far more likely to have their concerns put down to, yeah, a mental health diagnosis. And I think I always say to everyone too now, if you're feeling awful, don't wear makeup to the doctor <laughs> because it gives you this illusion of good health. Yeah. Uh, you know, bronzer can be very, especially on my pale skin, bronzer can be very uh, misleading, I think. Oh, my gosh, yeah. I'm wearing it right now just to <laughs> make up for the fact that I didn't get a full night's sleep last night. Yeah, so right, so right, right. And yeah. so I think all the doctors that I was seeing around that time, they just had this health bias like I'm naturally very bubbly and sparky even when I'm feeling awful. Uh, I think women, you know, and men as well, but there's this, there's a level of just like we deal with a lot of pain and we're tough. And so I, I would say I'm not a sook, I'm not a whinger, and I wish in hindsight I had been a bit more and I could go back and have been a bit more assertive and sort of said this is actually at a point where I'm not sleeping at night, I'm waking up every night in pain, this is having a huge impact on my health. And, you know, for me it was my mum and dad were just on my case. Yeah. Uh, mum particularly, she was saying, this is not normal, you know, these symptoms are not normal. And I think too, I had just begun to not look forward to anything in life. Like I remember getting a girlfriend's wedding invite and my first thought was, oh, it's going to be so much energy. going to be exhausted. Yeah, Yeah, a a sure sign that something is wrong. But at that time, you know, and then these doctors start to think, oh, are you depressed? And you think, oh, gosh, am I depressed? Like I'm not looking forward to anything, but because I feel awful all the time. I don't think I'm depressed. Maybe I am. Ah." So, you know, we, you, I think as women too, we so have to just trust our own intuition on things. We live in a world that is telling us constantly not to, but no one knows your body like you do, you know. And I'm the biggest fan of doctors and, and science and medical experts, but I also say to people you've got to couple that with knowing that only you know what it's like to live inside your body and feel what it feels like. Yeah, you've got to trust your gut and lean into your own intuition. And certainly with your mum being the one that put her foot down and had that intuition to be like, come on, we need to start assessing our situation here. So what was that journey like up until the assessment? Did you go to a few different doctors or was it one specific I had one GP that I'd been seeing for five years, so I was going to her consistently kind of every couple of months, still feel awful, still feel awful. And then I went and saw a second doctor and a third doctor who, you know, and even my parents were down in Sydney. I couldn't get into my usual GP, so they came along to see this GP with me. And I remember him just sort of thinking, who is this millennial princess, you know, with her parents (laughs) coming along to the doctor, like 31-year-old, are you joking me? Almost quite judgmental, but they were just so worried by that point they were like this is not normal Bryony's not herself sure uh something is up we know what she's like she's a tough cookie and she's really struggling and so yeah and it was I did feel a bit embarrassed I think going to the doctor with my parents but they just knew something was up and thank goodness they were so persistent and yeah my dad's a vet so you know has medical knowledge obviously for a different species (laughs) but just then surmised that mm, the symptoms he was concerned would sounded like lymphoma. Mm. So they ended up calling my GP and saying, we insist Bryony gets referred to a hematologist, which is a blood specialist, to have a closer look. 
Um, the GP was very resistant to do that. He had, he had to really push and say, well, unless we can rule it out, we need to go and investigate this. And I remember it wasn't until I went and saw that hematologist, and I still, honestly, I'd been through so many tests and so many dead ends by this point, I was not worried in the slightest. I was like, this is such an overreaction, going to see this hematologist, don't even know what a hematologist is. <laughs> and I remember her, like, really taking a detailed history and understanding my symptoms and just stopping at one moment and saying, so this is having a really big impact on your life. And I thought, stopped and thought about it and said, yeah, actually. And I realised it was the first person who had actually really listened and taken my pain seriously and given me cause to think, oh, okay, this isn't normal. Uh, but, you know, she said, we'll, we'll get some PET scan. We'll get a PET, uh, sorry, a CAT scan done, see, see what shows up. She called me the next day, said, yeah, the CAT scan's back. Look, we can see some enlarged lymph nodes. That could just be a virus could, you know, it could be anything. I think she was also just trying to keep me calm, probably aware that it was maybe worse than that. She said, come in, we're going to do a biopsy uh, under your armpit and come back in two weeks and get the results. And so I just thought, well, if it was bad news, they'd call you up, right? Um, and it literally was just not even, had never even crossed my mind that it would be something serious. And so I came back two weeks later to get the results. It was a, you know, busy day at work. So I, I, I raced into the hospital to go get the results on the way to work. We had Sophie Monk coming in that day. She'd just come off the bachelorette. You know, that's where my head yeah, was. Yeah. How long is it going to take me to get out of here, get to through the traffic, get to the office? My beautiful mum insisted on coming with me. She flew down from Queensland. I was like, mum, this is over the top. I don't have time to hang out. I'm so sorry. I'm going to have to get straight I've to work. I've got Sophie Monk waiting for me. I've got to go. Mom. I know. Big, big deal. Yeah. Big deal. And thank goodness she was there because, yeah, I went into that appointment, sat down, and the specialist said, I'm so sorry, but the results are back and it is Hodgkin's lymphoma like your parents were worried about. You know, and at that point I didn't know what that meant. I was like, is this bad? Like what what does that mean? Yeah, she, so, sorry, what? Yeah. Yeah, lymphoma. What does that even mean? She said, so what it means is we're going to have to just clear your next six months immediately and we're going to get you um, on a course of chemotherapy. And I knew that word was bad. And so I remember just the first question I asked was just, am I going to lose my hair? Yeah. And she said, yeah, you are. I'm so sorry but it will grow back. Um, and that was that that real kind of sucker punch moment where you just think this is just a normal Thursday morning and what, what on earth? Like yeah, I've my got life cancer? has completely what? taken a change. It's completely taken a turn. Oh, yeah. yeah. But in many ways I think it was so good that I hadn't until that moment really contemplated it. Because why, you know, it would just be like weeks of unnecessary stressing and worrying. It's not going to change the outcome. So in a way, I'm very grateful that I was a bit blase and vague about it. You didn't Google it or anything before you went in? No, because I didn't even really know what I was being tested for, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it was sort of my approach the whole way through. I mean, I was in a very fortunate position that I had a dad that had a lot of medical knowledge. Uh, and I know not everyone's in that position. And but for me, like some people want all the information they can get and they want to know every outcome and every possibility. For me, what was best for my mental health was actually just like needs to know basis. What, what do I absolutely need to know to do this? Um, and then I didn't really look into it too much. Otherwise, I was just guided by the experts as I went through. And um, 
Yeah, I, I think on that very first moment when she told me, my specialist, she just said, I don't want you to Google it. I don't want you to think about treatment even yet. We're not going to even focus on that today. We're just going to think about the next three steps, which is getting a blood test, getting a heart and lung test, and getting you into the IVF clinic. And it was just such helpful advice. I went, okay, I'm just going to do that. Just going to think about the next three things. And I did that the whole way through. And I, I still come back to it all the time now. And I, I wrote about it in my book because I, you know, whenever you're feeling overwhelmed and stressed, it's often because we're right, our thoughts are racing away into the future thinking about all the possible scenarios and it's so unhelpful. Um, But what's in this one moment right now, what's something that I can do to make this better or feel more manageable? And just coming back to that. One of the first things that you mentioned basically when you found out, you went into this mode of assessing, okay, well, what matters to me? Who do I need to tell? And it was the people that you were thinking about. Mm. And Every single time I watch that video, I feel a different emotion because you can just really see the depth of the evaluation of what life means and what the purpose of love and family and friendship Mm -hmm. is. And I would love to open the floor and have you talk about the the video that you made and the storytelling that you endeavoured on creating to capture what you were going through. Yes. Well, that very first day, uh, the last thing I felt like doing, to be honest, was pulling the camera out and starting to film. And my partner at the time just said, I think if you could find the strength to do it uh, or the time or the energy, I think you should just go up to your room, have some time to yourself and just record how you're feeling. And I was like, thanks for the suggestion. Not really into that. No. Um, he said, I really think you should. And so it was, it was, I'm really grateful that he encouraged me to do that. I went up and just to camera, just put down my first few thoughts of like exactly how I was filming. And that's actually that very first clip in the video where I just say, I do feel scared. And yeah. Uh, yeah, so my friends all pulled together and got me some equipment to go with my iPhone so that I could just document the journey. And because, you know, honestly, I obviously hoped I would get through it and survive and very fortunate that Hodgkin's lymphoma, of all the cancers, it does have a great survival rate, but, you know, people die every day from blood cancers. And so I didn't know what was going to happen. And so I think it gave me some kind of control in a situation I felt I had no control over and there was something kind of about taking power back being able to document it and record my story as I went and I didn't really know what I'd do with it I thought maybe maybe I'll make a doco when this is over but then I came back to you know my thing had been for the last 10 years making short form viral content on issues that I cared about content for change and so I gave all the footage to my work wife at the time from Mamma Mia and just said look I've written this little script would you just put this into a a video for me. I don't want to look at the footage. I can't go back and look at it right now. It's all a bit raw. And so she so kindly uh, traumatised the poor darling. She went off and edited it for me and she called me up like the next week. She's like, oh, gosh, like I can only edit this in like one-hour increments. She thought she'd just sit down and smash it out on in a day. And she said, "I yeah, I've got such an insight into what you've been through now and the pain that you've been in and, yeah, and, and so, yeah, put this it into a little video called You Only Get One Life, which went out in the world and went up on Mamma Mia, actually, and went viral. And one of the people that saw that was a publisher who just loved the tone and 
energy of it and just said, I'd love to talk to you about creating a book in this vein that could help other people going through the worst time of their life. And immediately when she suggested that, I just knew I wanted to do it. Um, Because, you know, when I first got diagnosed, I got given so many books, um, well-meaning books, you know, beautifully given and intentioned, but they were just black and white and they were dense and they were scary and I I couldn't, I didn't even want to touch them. I didn't even want them in my room. Like I literally was like, put them out in the corridor. I don't, I'm too, I'm scared of them. And so I wanted to create the complete antidote to that, something that felt kind of like your best friend in a book that someone that's been there, done that, isn't going to sugarcoat anything, isn't going to be like, it's all going to be fine, just be positive. That's like, yeah, this is really hard. What you're dealing with right now is so tough. Uh, I also want you to know that you can get through this You've got everything that you need to overcome this. People have overcome the most extraordinary things in life and you can do it too. And these are the ideas that helped me the most during that time. Because I think when I think back on it, you know, it wasn't the advice of the world's leading cancer experts that got me through it. It was it was people that had been through really challenging things, be that, you know, a miscarriage, a divorce, cancer, um, you know, losing a loved one, uh, I had a, a beautiful girlfriend who'd been dealing with horrifically, chronically debilitating chronic fatigue for five years or 10 years, and she had to adapt her whole mindset and way of life, and they're the people I reached out to and that I took so much strength from. So it was sort of like every little gem I learned from all these beautiful people along the way wanted to put it in the one place so that if someone, heaven forbid, you know, we're all going to have those moments, those days that knock the wind out of us, and I could just say, hey, This is everything I'd want to share with you to step you through this time. How beautiful is that? I'm in awe of your ability to put how you're feeling into words to describe how you want to help people and how a book like this helps a journey because I so agree. I think that whilst there's obviously information out there on the black and white of the situation, be that a divorce or going through cancer, it's often the stories from just everyday people who have experienced it and gone through it and lived it, the good and the bad, the black and the white of the story that helps people go through and see that I've been through it and so can you. And I really think that we can take storytelling to that next level when we share from our heart and we share our personal entries into what we went through because someone is going to connect with that. Yeah, completely. And I think, you know, my background of viral video making is that if you want to get a video that goes out in the world and goes ballistic, you need people to share. And why do people share? They share because something's helpful or it makes them laugh or, you know, they share for identity. Look at me, I'm this sort of person. And so like I was very well versed in really thinking deeply about the audience. And so I think a lot of people, you know, write books because they've got something to say and they want to say it. Uh, and they're not actually thinking of who is this for? Who? What do they need to hear right now? So, I mean, I knew exactly who I was writing it for because I was writing it for me when I first got diagnosed. But that was, that's then all the other. You know, I was, I had a lot of people reach out and contact me via Instagram, and I was sending them advice and feedback. So I was just, I knew exactly what I wanted to say and exactly those words that that person needed to hear. And I think that's always the best kind of content, isn't it? You know, you, it come comes from a place of heart and 
kindness and generosity, but it comes from a place of who can this serve and help rather than what do I want to broadcast to the world? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Hello, storytellers. Taking a moment of your time to introduce a service of mine that a few of you had encouraged and asked for, and I finally did it, card readings. So personal storytelling and finding your voice, as you know, is at the core of what I do, but a large part of that relates to the story of the soul and connecting to that source within you. And this can be harder for some than others. And so these readings are designed for anyone that's seeking guidance on a particular story or narrative that is open to receiving intuitive messages and would like to connect with their own intuition and truth. For those of you who follow me on social and have already had your first session, I've just loved helping you draw out the layers and context in your stories through these divination tools in my readings. If you're interested to learn more or book in a session with me, I'll include a link in the show notes. And so with the concept of words and how powerful our words can be, I know you had quite the journey with journaling and making sure that, uh, you know, I heard you in an interview say that you basically would not think of the chemo as something that you were going through and more that the medicine was working for you and things like that. Can you talk us through how you used language and the stories that you would tell yourself to help you get through your journey? Yeah, well, I think language is just so much more powerful than we give it credit for and the power of belief as well and and underlying beliefs that we're holding on to without even realising and that that's been really critical to my recovery after chemotherapy actually. But, yeah, one of the things when I was in it, uh, my sister actually at the time said, you know, and you've got to be very careful offering up this kind of advice, but my sister, you know, was in a position where I trusted her and um, and she just said, I've just been thinking about maybe as the hair starts to fall out, you could think this means the medicine's working and I'm a day closer to good health. Yeah. And it was really helpful. And I, so I did, you know, it was oh, it's traumatic losing your hair. It's an, it's just sad. It's awful. And I think originally I felt like I had to be really positive about it or, you know, it's just hair, like don't be vain. And a friend at the time, my friend Tim said, and he'd rung up the Cancer Council hotline and gotten some advice. And he said, look, it's not vain. Uh, I don't want to minimise this today. I don't want to joke about it. I'm just mourning the loss of your hair and I'm so sorry that you have to go through this. not fair. just really sucks. And knowing that you can, you know, I say to people often now, positive-only batteries don't work and positive-only people, it's a bit the same. You know, you can't force the positivity just to... Um, try and get through it because that actually is so draining um and and it's true of the person going through it and it's true for the people around you as well if they're trying to force it you know there's actually it's such a gift just to sit with someone and sit in the rubble with them and yeah this is awful I'm gonna listen to you I love you I'm here with you but we don't have to pretend that this is great and there's learnings in this and there's silver linings like yeah I'm the first to say great things can come out of terrible things um you know you and I both like know we've had huge life shakeups that have probably put us on a path that we're much more aligned with now and that's great but I think yeah this I this notion that we want to jump into fix-it mode and be like you know it's great look at all the good things happening there's there's a time and a place for that and it's not when you're in crisis mode yeah so yeah, yeah. definitely a little miss positive and it's funny because like I would say just even meeting you and chatting with you, you're quite a bubbly, friendly, positive person. And 
I feel like I have those traits as well, but it, 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 it can get draining and it can get quite exhausting when you have to feel like you have to put that out into the world all of the time. And I know Mm. with my experience that I went through, all of a sudden I felt like a rubber band just snap and it was like, I don't have to present that way all of the time and that it's actually a disservice to me and the journey that I'm going through if I'm Miss Positive and Miss Sunshine all of the time. Yeah, it's not honest. And it's also, like you said, it's just so draining. Um, you know, and I, all right, there's a page in the book that it was funny. I It was something my mum said to me one day because being positive and bubbly is so part of my nature that I, I didn't, like without that, I didn't know who I was in a way. I thought, well, if you take that away, like what's the point in any of this? And she said to me one day, you know, she just saw me pouring a lot of energy out, doing something when I didn't have a lot of energy, when I had chronic fatigue. And she said, you know, lemonade is still sweet even without the bubbles, you know, like it and and it was just one of those mummisms that you and and I ended up putting it in the book. And so it's it's so interesting. So many people always comment on that page how helpful it is for them. This idea that you you don't have to force this bubbly positive self. And I think women feel it particularly um, and particularly if you're, you know, feel like you're keeping everyone else around you positive and, but yeah, just to, just to sit with it. And I write in the book as well about an idea I came across that was just about actually welcoming the pain in for a cup of tea and acknowledging it. And rather than pushing it away and pretending everything's fine, you know, just, just actually welcoming it in, give it a name if, if you want. You know, I called mine Horace and when I'd get this nausea and fatigue, I'd just sort of say, oh, hi, Horace, you're back. Yeah, cool. Um, we hung out all day yesterday. Sweet. Okay. Uh, and the idea being that it just can't exhaust you in the same way because you're, you're acknowledging it, you're sitting with it rather than pushing it, pushing yeah. it away. And so how did, I suppose it's quite obvious that you, you got better in the end and you write about your journey, you know, going through chemo and coming out the other end and having that moment where you go, oh, like I made it. When you were in it, were you journaling quite extensively? Did you meditate? What kind of things did you do to connect back to you and your story? I became really religious about journaling. I would get up every single morning and do it. A friend sent me the book, The Artist's Way, and part of that has the morning pages in it. And the idea is you just get up every morning, first thing before you do anything else, you just brain dump three pages of writing out. And it, I didn't realize at the time, but journaling is incredibly therapeutic. It helps you you know, basically free up your your brain and your memory. You know, if you think of your brain as a computer and it's got limited RAM, um, it really like releases that and helps you process and it helps you uh, just see with clarity how you're feeling, uh, you know, over time. It's not going to happen on one, one day huh, of doing it. But the idea is that if you do it repeatedly over and over again, you really get clarity around what you want, where you're going, um, how you're feeling. And it's hard to whinge about the same thing over and over and not act on it. And it's also, I found really hard to lie on paper. You can tell yourself kind of things in your head, oh, it's all good, it's fine, da, da, da. But when pen comes to paper, for some reason, I just can't lie. And, you know, the research is pretty clear as well on journaling that people are more resilient following traumatic events. They bounce back quicker. Even, you know, in a study they conducted, people's wounds healed faster when they were journaling because it is. It's just that decompression, taking that stress out of your body, 
so for me, it became really powerful. And definitely, I know I wouldn't have written the book without it. So I always say to people as well, if you want to write a book, actually just start with journaling. Just start every morning. Uh, it doesn't matter what you write. There's no right or wrong way to do it. You literally just get up, brain dump. I always start with what I'm looking at out the window. That just gets you off and starting. And it's kind of like stretches for writing. Like it's like your warm up. Um, and it just, by the time that book offer came around, I was like, yeah, let me at it. Like, I can't wait to do this um, because it reconnected me with my love of writing. And, you know, I, I, on days I'm most happy, it's the days where I wake up and I start the day with writing. So my word of the year this year is write, and I'm trying to write every morning. I've failed a little bit over the last month because I've been working pretty um, heavily on a state election. But, yeah, and that's fine too, you know, but... I want to get back into that because for me it is a form of meditation really. It's where I find my flow and calm and anything's possible on the page, I think. Definitely, definitely. Wow, so you've got quite a few things on the go and and lots of exciting projects. Is there anything that you want to share with the Jesse listeners? Yeah, well, I mean, I've spent the last year, year and a half, working very heavily with, you know, for me um, my biggest passion, it's always been climate And it's always been environment. And I think going through the experience of cancer really brought me back to that. And I write at the very end of the book, you know, it's it's so easy to get stressed and overwhelmed when you think about the scale of the problems in climate, you know. And I think there's so much global anxiety and depression around that. But the antidote to anxiety is action. And so what I've been so inspired by in the last 18 months is the incredible women and men, but largely women, that have stepped up to run as independent candidates, uh, largely on climate grounds, not all, but many of them. Mm. And so I got involved with that movement to help them with content and help them, yeah, create really cut through video that would get them out there. And that's been, yeah, one of the most impactful and important pieces of work I've ever done. You know, and I, yeah, I was saying, I write about at the end of the book, this analogy of, you know, when someone gets cancer, we don't say, oh, well, too bad, it's it's too late yeah. and just let them go. We don't. No matter how dire it is, you know, I was stage four. We throw everything that we've got at it and I think it's the same with the planet. It's easy for people to go, oh, it's too hard, it's too big it's a problem. Done. yeah. It's done, you know, and it's not. Like, there are, I'm constantly inspired by the amazing people I meet working in the climate space. Some of the most clever strategic brains in the world are working on this issue and we've got all the solutions there and it's now just about you know changing the politics so this can can happen and so for me that's been really exciting to see this group of women that have said you know what i can't sit by and watch anymore and keep yelling at the television and feeling frustrated with the state of politics what if we could change it for better and i think that felt like a very outlandish idea 18 months ago and then we saw it happen and we saw communities all over the country come together be energized and say no we want something more we want something better and it's honestly revitalized my faith in humanity in our ability to actually rise to this challenge uh, because you're seeing it, you know, people have said enough is enough. This isn't okay anymore. And when I, I, I get a lot of time to interview people on the streets and interview people as volunteers, everyday people that I would say, not everyday people, I'd say they're extraordinary people. Yeah. And they're just so passionate and so committed. Uh, and it gives you a lot of hope because I think it's easy to 
think, does anyone care? Or so many people care, you know, and the vast majority of Australians, for example, are very climate concerned, want to see action, you know, and luckily in this country, we live in the a renewable energy superpower. You know, we, we are the sunniest, windiest continent on the planet. Uh, so the future is actually very bright for our country. And I think, yeah, focusing on those positives, just doing something, getting active and getting involved in something that can really make a difference, that's been incredibly energising. And it was, it was that cancer shake-up that brought me back to what do I want to spend my time and energy doing? this you know oh yeah making impact yeah I was gonna say it's so evident just hearing you speak about it and how passionate you are about it and I think that when you go through a huge as you said shake up of life and whatever that looks like it just really realigns you with okay this is this is important to me these are the things that matter this is where my heart is and this is where I'm going to go with without fear yeah without fear and with massive amounts of hope you know yeah within it because when when hope is not there everything is hard <laughs> um, and feels not possible but it's all possible it's all mindset you know I, uh, once again with my healing and recovery um, six months ago I did a process called the lightning process and that really changed my life it was all about rewiring my neural pathways uh, and literally in a day my chronic fatigue symptoms disappeared overnight like it was just incredible and I didn't realize these beliefs, these patterns, this language that I was using that I thought was keeping me safe was actually keeping me sick and stuck. And like, you know, that's a whole nother podcast episode. But I'm like, oh my gosh, come back. But, let's talk about that too. Yeah, that's a whole nother podcast episode. But even simple shifts like changing the language of I'm stressed, I'm overwhelmed too. I'm doing stress. I'm doing overwhelm. Um, oh, I'm doing neck pain today. Oh, I'm doing brain fog. And then suddenly I felt, oh, I've actually got I'm actually not passive to this thing. I can actually, I have a choice um, as to which way this is going to go. That was a huge revelation to me. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm definitely going to look into that because I'm fascinated by that. And as I continue with my journey and my storytelling journey, I'm really trying to make an active choice in the language that I'm using, the stories that I'm telling myself. And as I work with clients too, the the language that they're using and the beliefs that they hold and how they can attract or subtract certain things from their life. And so I will absolutely be looking that up, but I won't take any more of your time. I want to thank you again for coming on and sharing all of the wonderful, wonderful insight and information that you do. And I will be sure to link your book in the show notes so that everyone else can check it out and the video too. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been, I've really enjoyed our conversation. It's been beautiful to get to know you. And yeah, thank you for the stories that you tell and share with the world. And because, you know, the ripple effects of that, you don't even know uh, what that does sometimes, but it's really powerful. Thank you. There was so many takeaways from that chat and it's really hard to just pull out one and highlight it. But I've recently been writing about the important role of knowing your audience and knowing why you're serving your audience in that way in your storytelling and also just how knowing your audience enhances your story. So I'm going to touch on that a little bit more. Knowing your audience and being aware of how to show up for them, best for them, is what sets your storytelling apart, I swear to God. And I loved how she mentioned that you don't just want to be broadcasting your experience all of the time on your soapbox constantly from the lens of me but rather you want to be serving and coming at it from a lens of like how can I show up in my story and be real with my story and serve another through that that 
serving mentality is the difference there. And I find this mindset shift from me to them really helps me get out of a rut, especially if I'm feeling like my confidence has taken a hit or if I'm like unsure of my ability to share this particular story or if I have the authority, if I'm kind of falling into those traps. If I get out of an ego frame of mind of like my story, my opinion, me, 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 and into my heart space of knowing like, okay, who am I telling the story for again? Um, What do they need to get out of this story? What can I serve them with in this story? Even if it's just serving my younger self, you know, like how does showing up and sharing my story in a way that serves her look like? How am I serving a 21-year-old Janika or a 15-year-old Janika or an 8-year-old Janika? So even if that's just, you know, the audience is just you as a younger version of you, that's fine too. But it's just really important to be aware of your audience and always be checking in on, okay, who is this for? It might be me, but who else can benefit from this? What do they need to hear? What are they going to connect with in my story and go from there? Until next time, storytellers. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Just You, a storytelling podcast creating a space for people to voice their stories, personal experiences and learnings to help others identify themselves in them. If you've got a story to share or a voice you'd suggest be heard, get in touch in the show notes. Everybody has a story in them and sometimes the story is reflected in us all. Thank you for listening to today's and chat soon.